Good morning. I'm filling in for uh, Stephen today. We are in the book of Ezekiel. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to do that. Um, I have, in 30 years of, of preaching, I have taught, I think, most of the books of the Bible. But I don't know that I ever remember teaching in an, on the adult level the book of Ezekiel. So um, it's, a, it's a very interesting section we find ourselves in. We got into the text last week, and just by way of brief review, who is the target audience of the book of Ezekiel. Okay, so the exiles in Babylon, so who then would we be focusing on? Now let's just, just step back just a minute. Seven, well, let's see, in 931 B.C., what happened to Israel? This would have been in Rehoboam and Jeroboam's reign. It split, okay? And so as a result, what did we have uh, on the other side of that? With a split, all right, so keep it in mind that these are all Jews. These are all the descendants of Abraham. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And we won't take the time because it's not under the purview of Ezekiel to figure out why all that happened. There's multiple reasons why it divided. But as the result, in 931, for about 209 years, the northern kingdom, which is uh, it's 10 tribes, uh, 10 and a half tribes, that, take, that keeps the identity of Israel, What happens to them? Okay, so anybody know about when? It's okay. You you didn't think you had to have a bunch of dates known, but it's 722 B.C., okay? So the Assyrians come in, and what do they do? They destroy them. They're gone. Okay, so who's left is Judah, the southern kingdom. All right, so that southern kingdom is going to continue from 722 B.C., Till about 606 B.C., so a little over 100 years. And then who's going to be the aggressor that comes in and takes them into captivity? The Babylonians. All right, so where are they when Ezekiel writes? They're in Babylon. So who are we focusing on specifically among the descendants of Abraham? These are the people of Judah. All right, so keep that in your mind as we go into this. So there are two books that are written to the, Ju- the people of Judah while they're in exile. There's this book and there's the book of Daniel. And the especially is it true in Daniel, you have more historical accounts in the book of Daniel, but you also have a, a lot more, we talked about, you remember we talked about apocalyptic language? Uh, the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel, it's, it's more so in, by sheer volume in Ezekiel, but percentage-wise there's more apocalyptic language in the book of Daniel. What is apocalyptic language? Okay, highly figurative. Hyperbole. So it's, uh, and I always like to use an example that we use in Western culture in the 21st century. It's raining cats and dogs. That's That's... Uh, apocalyptic. It's there's not typically actually dogs and cats. Occasionally fish, but you know no no canines and felines. But we say that to give the picture of what? What what is that? Apocalyptic. It's a downpour. It's a deluge. It's raining hard. Okay. So Ezekiel is going to engage in a lot of apocalyptic language, highly figurative language. And why would he do that? It's to get the message across, things are extreme, okay? 
So we got into the commissioning of Ezekiel last week in Ezekiel chapter 1 through chapter 3. So now God is going to begin to give some uh, illustrations through the prophet Ezekiel. Some of the more uh, unique, unusual illustrations in, to me in all the Bible. Now I don't know if you have ever... And I don't think I've done much of it. I think I've done a little bit of it here, but not as much. But have you ever been in a Bible class or uh, been in uh, a worship service where the preacher or the teacher used some kind of object lesson? What what stands out to you? You remember? And any object lesson you ever had from the a preacher or otherwise? Okay, so it's uh, that rope illustrated to you eternity. That's kind of hard to forget, right? That's I think. Some of these object lessons are so good that a lot of other preachers have used it. I, I don't think you and I were in the same service, but I've seen that same illustration used. Any other object lessons you remember? Huh? Keith Parker? Okay. All right, so uh, the chairs. I, had, I don't think mine was the same as, as Keith's, but I did a chair sermon here. Um, but those, it's kind of like, there's nothing original with anybody but ignorance, you know, so I, I think we all kind of got that from one place or the other. Um, the door, so that, um, I heard Alan Webster do one on the, he, he, when people came in the door, he gave everybody a ticket. So, you know, and he said, there's only two tickets. There's a red ticket and a blue ticket. And it was a mystery ticket to eternity. And you know, he, he had, he asked you to hold on to that ticket through the whole time. So you're through that sermon going, I wonder what this is all about, you know. Now, I, I, I do an object lesson when I teach on the scheme of redemption um, where I, I take a, a picture of some uh, a beautiful place and, and I cut it into a bunch of little pieces and I give it around to everybody, and which means I can't use that here, I guess. But, it, I, I, you know, I give it to everybody in the audience and say, hey, what, it is it, what is it you have in your hand? And people are going to be interpreting, well, it's maybe this, it's maybe that. And, and, I, and the point is, if we could sit down together somewhere, we could put that picture together and we'd see the whole picture and I'll hold it up or project it on PowerPoint. Here's what the big picture looks like. And it's an illustration of, you know, can you tell me what the whole Bible is about using only the book of Obadiah or the book of Genesis or the book of Revelation or Acts? You need the whole picture, right? The big picture. Um, so, you know, there, I remember being four years old and being in Sister Gober's Bible class. I mean, I know it was only five or ten years ago, but, you know, it's been a while. And so I remember we had the flannel graphs, and, you know, that's how she usually taught. But she had, um, she came in one day, and I don't really like gingerbread, but she had a gingerbread house. And it was to represent uh, the fall of Jericho. Um, now, I think I filled in a few blanks from that class, but, man, it stuck with me. It stuck with me almost, almost 50 years, that class that she taught on that one Sunday morning. Object lessons are great. Now... Um, one time we had a professional magician in Virginia and he, um, uh, what he made his bread and butter on was going into the restaurants and shaping balloons. Um, and so he did that, you know, routinely. And I, I had this, this great idea. I thought, I said, I'm going to, you know, you know, they talk about the different personalities, right? So you have the, the lion and the beaver and, uh, the otter and you know, those different, there's different ways to do that. Herodotus is different personalities, extroverts, introverts. And so I was going to preach from a biblical standpoint on that. And so I said, Hey, Brad, make me some of those balloons. Shape me a, 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 a lion, shape me a, um, all those other animals. And so I had them under the pulpit. You know, in those days I preached behind the pulpit and I got up there and came to point one and I went to pull that balloon out. And I don't know, there's something happened in that one moment, an epiphany that should have hit me way before then. This is dumb. But, you know, if, what is it? they used to say, if you're going to be dumb, you better be tough. You know, so there's no going back. So 
I put that balloon animal up there for everybody to see. And let me tell you, I was dreading each main point because I had to reach under there again and put that out. But you know what, people? That's one of the sermons they remembered the most, those, those object, object lessons. Now, I said all that to say um, that some of the most incredible object lessons in the entire Bible are in this, four cycle, this cycle of four object lessons that we see especially in Ezekiel chapter 4 and chapter 5. And who's the originator? Who's the one that came up with these object lessons? God. So we know they're going to they're going to they're going to land. They're going to hit home. They're going to be effective. And, and really, it's incredible. And what God does with these object lessons is He is showing uh, that He's involved in this message. And we'll see why in just a moment. All right. So we we get to Ezekiel chapter four, and we'll read as much as we can. Um, I believe our our class period is going to be a little bit shorter today, so I want to just kind of walk through some of the highlights. In Ezekiel chapter four, what's the first object lesson? All right, so we have the siege of Jerusalem, and how is the siege, how is that depicted? What, how is that object lesson laid out? What's it called for? It's open book, you can cheat. It's right there in Ezekiel chapter 4. All right, so it's a model of a city. All right, and so in that city, what, what are the main parts that make up the object lesson? Okay, all right, so you've got two-thirds of it. What was the first object? All right, so you have the, the, the brick or the, the tablet, and he's, he's to write on it what? Jerusalem. All right, so if you can imagine this, he's, uh, you know, if you played armies when, uh, when you were a kid, uh, guys, maybe some girls too, I don't know, whatever, you, uh, you, and you lay it all out there. That's what he's doing, basically. So he, he says, take this brick and put on it Jerusalem, and then you're going to uh, kind of have the soldiers all put out there. You're going to have the siege camp. Uh, around there, you're going to demonstrate what's going to take place. There's going to be this siege. Um, there's some question. I think the only part that we really have to kind of work through is that plate. And let me tell you what I think that that is. What I believe that that is is that's God's uh, God standing between uh, the people uh, and in the siege. They're not going to be able to break that siege. They're not going to be able because God has set Himself against the city. There's no way for them to have success. Now, you think about again, who is Ezekiel writing to? Alright, so where are they? They're in Babylon. So why would you need this object lesson for people who are already away from home? And if you look on a map, we're talking several hundred miles to your northeast. Why do you need that object lesson for them? Alright, so I want you to think about a parallel between... Um, Ezekiel's writing and Jeremiah's writing in this regard. Um, you know, Jeremiah's message changes over time, but his, his first message is repent or you're going into captivity. But then his message changes to say, you're going into captivity. It's set. It's done, which didn't make him very popular. Uh, you think about somebody disloyal to his country. Here's a man who's saying, look, um, so let's think if it was us in Russia or us in China. And you had a prophet like Jeremiah who says, Look, the Chinese are coming in, and they're take, or they're taking you there, or Russia, or whoever the enemy is, or uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. You're going in. There's nothing you can do about it, and I don't care what anybody else says. It's not a very nationalistic message, is it? And so here's Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's saying, look, this is what's going to happen. And as you might imagine, he was unpopular. And there began to be that message in Jeremiah's day saying, oh, you're just going to go for a little while. You're going to come back. Well, Ezekiel... 
appears to be dealing with some exiles who are thinking this is not going to go very long. But God made a promise to Jeremiah and the other prophets have privy to the writings of the other prophets. Because remember, Daniel is going to pray to God at the end of his life and say, God, spend 70 years. Will you listen to what you said to Jeremiah, the prophet? So here is Ezekiel with privy to the message that this is going to be 70 years. I don't... Um, I didn't think to get this statistic, but I know it's before the destruction of Jerusalem. Otherwise, this makes no sense. They've been in captivity for a while, but they've got a longer while left to remain in exile. And so Ezekiel is saying, and he uses, so again, keep this in mind, this cycle here in Ezekiel 4 and 5 is, um, here's here's the first thing you need to, to get to understand my message, God's message through Ezekiel. Um, there's going to be a siege now, have, what do you know about sieges? What, are, what do you typically see as a result? What is a siege? Okay. Okay. All right, so the idea is, is um, and we're seeing this right now, let's say, in, in Ukraine. That's, that's what they're trying to do strategically. It's what an army who's, uh, who comes in and is trying to, to take an objective, they'll try to cut off supplies um, and water and food are going to run out at some point. And when that happens, people have no resources, and they're much more willing to, to give up. All right, so this is Ezekiel's first message. And, he, and, I, and I want you to keep in mind, he's saying this to the people of God who are already there. Um, so that's, that's the first. The second object lesson maybe the single most incredible one in all the Bible, to me anyway. Uh, what is the second object lesson? Lay on your left side 390 days. Get up, lay on your right side for 40 days. So a total of 430 days. Um, you know, I don't know if any of you consult commentaries when you're uh, reading and studying uh, a, a text. Um, I'm amazed, and I, and I don't really know why, that you have some who would try to say that this is some figurative thing, that, that uh, Ezekiel was not actually on his side for that period of time. Now, we can understand why they would say that, right? I, I just want you to... Now, I've been running almost a quarter century. It's hard for me to go through a single night on my side. Um, can you imagine being on one side, laying there 390 days? So just for your edification, that's a year and just shy of a month. On one side, is he going to be able to move in that time? God says, I'm going to fasten you with a cord. Now, um, this should have been... What, what do you think is going to happen? He's going to lay outside of his house. What kind of an effect is the prophet laying on his same side day after day, week after week, month after month, a year, and then almost another month? What do you think is going to happen over the process of time? Have you seen that, that guy Ezekiel? Look at, look at what he's doing. He was there. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's been there. Oh, yeah, he's been there. Man, it's been a year and, and 25 days. You know, that's incredible. Well, what Ezekiel 3.24 tells us, the Spirit of God is upon him. And so what should this have told the people as they see Ezekiel on his side? What should it have told them? Well, I know, first of all, the, the fleshly response is, it's crazy. But what should it have told them if they were really paying attention? Yeah, you need to listen. It's serious. God is in control of this. God is making this happen. All right, so um, 
we, we have a difficulty that we've got to work through here. And, and I'm going to tell you how I think we can resolve that. Those days represent what? All right. So the years, the years are the sins of the people. So if we're looking at somewhere in the, the uh, early 6th century B.C., and you go back 390 years, you're not going to get to a good historical place for this. Um, so people are saying, well, what's he, what does he have reference to? Let me tell you what I think he has reference to. You take those 40 days, which are um, the, the days that are devoted for Judah, who are actually the ones uh, in captivity. It doesn't exactly line up right with the end of the, the sentence, but kind of close to that. I don't think it has to do with something that was ahead of them, or something specific that was behind them. 430 years is a is a just kind of a, a, a banner date. Uh, it's one of those numbers in Israelite history that stand out starkly. What does the 430 years represent? The years in Egypt. Now, um, you have that bondage, that physical bondage that they find themselves to in Egypt. And whenever you want to talk about, even to this day, the time of hardship, the time of trouble, the time of problem, the time in which they are there in suffering, that's where they're going to point, to the time of bondage in Egypt. Um, it, it, it certainly is not the, the, the depth of the valley of their sinfulness. Man, there's too many to choose from along the way. Um, but it is a time of severity. It's a time in which they cry out to God. And it seems to me that what Ezekiel is doing is he's saying, look, this is, um, what you have to face is, is a terrible time. It, it, you're, you're paying for the sins of iniquity. And, and there's a couple of lessons that kind of emerge from this. What does it say about the patience of God that we've gotten to this point? You know, how, how bad had things been For Israel, you think about the fact that they go over 200 years. There are 19 kings on the throne of Israel, and how many of them are righteous? Approximately? Round it down, round it up, it's still the same. Zero. No righteous kings. Every single one of them, and there's a change of dynasty four or five times, at least four, and you have uh, one after the other, the same thing is said about every one of them that they sinned according to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, one after the other. And what's happening all this time? There's a little bit better times in there. I'd say Jehu gets close to the best that ever was, but still not good. They're in this, they're, they're, here's what Israel is doing. And what's God doing all that time? He's patiently waiting. He's giving them the opportunity. And then finally, Sennacherib comes and destroys them. After 200, so what, 200 years ago, 1822, how different was the world? How much has happened in that period of time? God was patiently waiting. Now you think about Judah. Judah's going to be alone. In addition to, now during that time, they have some ups and they have some downs. And we'll look at uh, what he says when he talks about the mountains in, in chapter 7. But you, you, you have some highlights in Judah, but not many. Basically, here's what Judah is doing. Right? And, and there's prophets coming to both of them and saying, you need to come back, you need to repent, you need to be restored. And ultimately, by the time of Ezekiel's writing, they're in captivity as a result of their sin. And so Ezekiel is trying to illustrate God's patience, but when God's, patience, when, when God's hand is there with us, think about how good things are. But what were to happen if God were to pull his hand away? 
You know, the prophets sometimes use this kind of imagery or, or, or um, a depiction of how things are. You have the, the, the wine vat uh, and, and God's treading those grapes. And there comes a point where that, that they've been treading the point that what happens? It overflows. And what is that a, a picture of? I mean, God's wrath is waiting. But there comes a point where he's, that he's exhausted his patience and then judgment has to happen. Now, I'm saying all that to say this is what's happening in the book of Ezekiel. And God is giving him these object lessons so that the people could get a graphic picture. So let's ask ourselves a question. If you're walking by Ezekiel's house and you see the, the man laying on his side for over a year um, and you, you have had them playing army out there and he's saying... The son of man, 93 times, this is a man who is commissioned by God. He's demonstrating that God's behind him for just to be able to lay there for, for 430 days. What should it have done? What did God intend for that to do for the people? Yeah, that's what God wants. He wants repentance. He wants them to change. He wants them to come back to him. The story of Scripture, wherever you are, is God saying, come to me. Or if we're not there, return to me. That's all he wants. And he's, going, he'll, he's willing to go to any length. And by the way, kudos to Ezekiel for his faithful execution of what God's laying on him. All right. Um, the third um, object lesson is eating the unclean bread. All right. That's chapter 4, verse uh, 9 through 17. Um, why is it unclean? By the way, this is funny to me. Um, Babylonian Talmud um, in the 3rd century B.C. did an experiment in which they made this bread and they laid it out there for the dogs. Guess what happened? The breads would not, I mean to the breads, the dogs would not eat it. You can go down to Kroger for $5 and buy some. You ever seen Ezekiel bread? Did you know that that's what this is? All right, so here, hold on, let's let's go through the, you have the the different uh, things that make it up, right? You have Wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put it in one vessel and make it into a bread. Um, so why is it unclean? The fuel. Okay. Now, what I find interesting, maybe you picked up on this too, is that you go through Ezekiel chapter 4, you go all the way through Ezekiel chapter 5, and um, I don't know where your jumping off point is and where you might say a word in protest, but uh, Ezekiel, it's not recorded. Ezekiel says, God, you want me to sell on my side for over three, 390 days and then 40 more? No no protest. Man, something about the character of Ezekiel. Now he's finally going to stand up and say, wait a minute. I can't do that. Why? Because it, what does God want him to do? Why is it unclean? Why is it defiled? Cooked over human waste. And now why does God ask him to do that? Put it in the context of what's going on. Where are they? What's going to happen? Whether we're talking about those in Jerusalem or those who are dispersed to the nations, because Ezekiel's dealing with both. Things are going to get so bad in response to the sin that has been accumulating for all this period of time that you're going to find yourself in a situation. If you're going to be in siege and you're going to find yourself cut off, you're going to get to a place to where you're finding everything in your pantry. And you're putting it all together, and you're going to make this bread, and you, man, you've got to live, and you can't, there's no cows. So you're going to go do whatever you can in order to just try to survive. Um, by the way, I don't think we dealt with this. The uh, starvation ration that he had 
we're talking about, and that's good because they have the four object lessons. And really what happens after that is it's, it's a continued message of destruction for many and hope for a remnant. That's really chapter 6 and chapter 7. So we can tell Stephen next week that we got all the way through uh, the material there. But um, the ration that he had of this Ezekiel bread, I did the math for you, eight ounces of that. So maybe you could be hungry enough to eat some Ezekiel bread once a day. Same time of day, I think, is what he means by that, the, the period after period or time after time. And then water, a sixth of a hen, best I could figure, at 16 to 32 ounces of water. Uh, that's barely enough to keep you alive. And, and this is for 430 days. He's going to have this starvation ration. What does it represent? This is what you're going to face in this condition. Now, by the way, just to relieve your mind, God does allow... Uh, he relents and he allows Ezekiel to cook it over cow dung, which is still commonly done all over the world. It's not going to be unclean. It's not going to make it defile. But he's to illustrate the point that they're, what they're going to get is going to be defiled. They'll do. In fact, we're going to see before we're done, they're going to resort to cannibalism. That's how terrible things are going to get. And, and what's behind all of this? God's not this mean, arbitrary, unfeeling, cold. You make one mistake and you're done. One strike and you're out. What is it's for God? It's been strike fifty-seven, strike two hundred, and He's still giving them a chance. But they just don't. They're they're sometimes we can get so set in our defiance to the will of God that we'll continue down that track, and nothing is going to get our attention. And God says, well, "I can get your attention," and it's and it's still for what purpose? I want a remnant to survive. Because remember, these folks in Ezekiel's uh, audience. Are among them are the ancestors through whom the Messiah is going to come. God's purging the terrible sin problem that has existed. And so we have that. I'm going to make sure that I get to that fourth uh, object lesson. And these are really just different ways of saying the same thing. In chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, God tells him to cut his hair with a sword of his beard and of his head. All right, and he's going to come up with this pile of hair. Now, once he shaves his head, he's defiled and he's no longer holy as a priest, according to Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 5. But this is a symbol of humiliation for Judah to tell them they're no longer clean. They're no longer holy to God. And so the hair's divided. One part of the hair is going to be burned. Uh, one part of the uh, hair is going to be hacked with a sword. And then one part is going to be thrown to the wind. So it seems to me what he's saying is this refers to those who are in the city of Jerusalem. Those who are around the city of Jerusalem are going to be punished, going to be destroyed. And then that remnant's going to be blown. Now it also says for that third that escapes those first two fates, he's going to unsheathe the sword. And some of them uh, that are scattered are going to be meet God's punishment. But there's going to be in that third a remnant. Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to come back. And they're going to re, re, uh, not, not conquer or possess the land, but to occupy that land. Um, what we have, I think, in chapter 5, verse 5 through 17, is an explanation of these four things that he's just talked about. And then in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, you have him giving um, a double message of destruction and hope. Just a couple of things before the second bell rings. Um, the phrase, the word of the Lord, appears 60 times in Ezekiel. Emphasis on this comes from God, doesn't come from Ezekiel. First time you see that is in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, you have the first occurrence of the word idols in verse 4. Uh, did you know the word idols only appears 48 times in the Old Testament? 39 of them in the book of Ezekiel. 
So Ezekiel's really focusing in on what was the impediment to their faithfulness. And it was that they had substituted uh, him for these gods of the land. God saying, okay, you want to trust in them to take care of you? In chapter 7, he goes up to the mountains. And maybe you say, well, why the mountains? Why the hills? All the way back. All the way back to the United Kingdom. They had, and really some of this is when they came out of and they began to conquer the land before the, the tabernacle was set in one place, before the temple was set up, the people went and worshipped God at first on the high places. You know, you think you have this good vantage point, uh, you go to the highest place so you can honor God, but what very quickly happened on the high places? Idols. Yeah, it kind of fits with why I mentioned the idols. So they're worshipping idols. Now, and there are good kings of Judah like Asa and Jehoshaphat. But you know what? They did not remove the high places. As far as I know, there's only two. Hezekiah in 690 and uh, Josiah in 620 removed, destroyed the high places. It's blips on the radar because mostly they're, they're not removing these. So here's, here's the thing. We'll close this. Ezekiel 44 and verse 10 talks about the Levites and it says, they, they were serving me. But you know what they had in their back room? They had their idols. So here's the guys who are leading in worship. And they're telling you to be faithful to God, but when they go to their retreat to their little places, you know what they do? They have their idols. They worship the false gods. God's saying, you can't do that and think that there's not going to be a response from me. But keep in mind, even in this dire message, on the other side of it is, there's hope. All right, I heard that second bell. We're, We're done with class. Thank you guys for your attention.